So we are in the middle of a series on the cycle of victorious giving. And it's kind of a play uh, from a book, play on a book, that was called The Cycle of Victorious Living. And the first week, two weeks ago, was trust. Trusting God, trust to live, trusting Him to meet all your, of our needs. And then last week we talked about making the commitment, a commitment to grow in our generosity, to grow in our giving. And as I said from the get-go, it's about so much more than money, finances. That's a huge part of it because money and finances are one of those things that are a really good way to measure our generosity, to measure our confidence in the Lord, to measure if we really trust like we say we do. But it is more than money. It's all our time and our talents, as well as the treasure that God has given us. So this week, it's delighting to give. Giving as an act of Christian community. You know, as, as Jody said, they, they dedicate the child unto the Lord, but they look to us as the body of Christ to assist them, to help them, to be there for them. And generosity and giving is an important part, it's a critical part of the Christian community. I'm going to read uh, in Psalms again. By the time we get through, we'll all have it memorized. But in Psalms 37, starting at verse 2, verse 1, Do not fret because of evildoers, be not envious towards wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. And then these scriptures, starting in verse 3, they really want you to grab a hold of. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And verse 5, commit your ways to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will do it. So, this week, we're going to be looking at delighting in giving. I kind of had a hard time believing this when I saw it this week. As I was doing some background reading for this message, I came across, I'm a, I, for those of you that don't know me very well, um, I, I was a school teacher. Once upon a time, I taught sciences. Chemistry, biology, physics, all that really exciting, thrilling stuff. And I discovered in recent history there's been a development of a new science. And this is serious, I'm not joking. It's called the science of happiness. Can you believe that? They're doing research to try to discover how to make people more happy. Really. You think I'm joking, I can tell. Seriously, the science of happiness. As a matter of fact, in one book, a guy who has done some of the research, Martin Stilligman, and the book was called Authentic Happiness, he said this. One of his goals was to increase the total tonnage of happiness in the world. Does that sound ridiculous to anybody but me? Total tonnage of happiness in the world needs to be increased. Well, I don't disagree with that statement, but their whole science is so flawed. 
they're looking at all the wrong places for happiness. And their research is equally ridiculous. However, they have found some things that I believe are accurate, and I'm not sure how helpful. For example, this is one of those duh things. They have discovered that optimistic people are more happy than pessimistic people. (laughs) I hope that didn't cost us millions and millions of dollars to discover that. But some of the things that they they have discovered uh, shouldn't surprise us, but they might because of the way we sometimes think in our humanness about happiness. They discovered, for instance, they studied lottery winners and people who have spinal injuries. And they discovered, even on those two ends of the spectrum, whether it was lottery winners or spinal injuries, that neither group was affected by their circumstances near as much as would be expected. Interesting. They also found that what we think will make us happy is not a good indicator of what will make us happy. Our predictions are not accurate at all in the area of happiness. What we think will bring us pleasure. You know, and I had a relative. It's okay because she's an in-law, so I can pick on a sister-in-law. But she had this idea that if she could just remodel her basement, she'd be happy. If she could just get a different house, she could be happy. If she would just get a new car, she would be happy. And if she could just get rid of the guy she thought was a loser as a husband, she would be happy. Well, she did all those things. And she's one of the most miserable people I know. And she's not that much different than a lot of us. What we think will make us happy really doesn't do it. They also, you know, even, how many of you want to watch the Vikings today? How many of you are lying? <laughs> Won't it make you happy if they finally win? For about this long, it'll make you happy. It doesn't do what we think it will do. The impact doesn't last near as long as we would like it to last. You know, there was one of the researchers, I, I hate to even call him that. It's a problem of mine, I guess. One of the pioneers in this happiness research discovered this. Getting more stuff doesn't seem to work either. What a shock. Getting more stuff. What they have discovered with all this research is aspirations, the things we want, escalates. In other words, as our income goes up, what we want goes up right along with it usually just ahead of the pace that our income goes up. Man, if I could just get a new Toyota, then all of a sudden, if I could just get a new BMW, if I just could get, it changes. And all of a sudden, happiness becomes this elusive thing that we're continually trying to chase, but we never get there. And we become disappointed disillusioned, happiness. The scripture that I just read in Psalms 37, delight yourself in the Lord. There is a formula for real happiness and satisfaction. Don't need much research at all. As we delight ourselves in the Lord, We find a happiness, a joy, a blessedness that goes so much deeper into our soul than any material thing ever could. 
and it's free. Free. So we're going to look at delighting to give. And you might say, boy, Mike, you made a big jump, delighting things to make you happy, and now you're going to talk about giving. doesn't make me all that happy. That's because we don't understand God's perspective on giving. I'm going to be focusing on finances, of course, but that is not what I want you to limit your hearing to. Delighting to give of all your talents, your treasures, your time, the gifts that you have. It's part of being in a Christian community. And it's God's heart. And that's what my prayer is as we go through all of this. You don't just hear a preacher talking about trying to convince his congregation to give more money. What you begin to hear and understand is God's heart on why in over 2,000 verses in the Bible he talks about money and materialism. It's a big deal. And his principles are a big deal. In Luke 6, it says this, Give and it will be given unto you. When we look at this, we should see and understand that what God is saying, giving should be way more than giving something away. It's a blessing to the one who gives. Oftentimes more so than the one who receives. And as most things in our Christian life, Jesus is the example we need to start with. Jesus set the pattern for giving. And you've got to know right up front, there is no one here, no one, that is ever going to give to the level that Jesus did. But he still should be a motivation and a standard we could look to. I can't live in my human nature a holy and righteous life, but I strive to live a life like Christ. Amen? I can't give like he gave. But that shouldn't mean I shouldn't strive to be giving and have the same generosity and the heart as Jesus had. When we look at this, in, verse, or in 2 Corinthians, and you might want to just jot this down, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is a great chapter to read about generosity. And I'm going to just read one verse for now. In verse 9, it says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. What does it mean he became poor? What does it mean through his poverty we could come rich? Jesus had spent eternity with the Father and the Holy Spirit in heaven. And whatever we can imagine heaven to be, that's where Jesus had been. And out of obedience to the Father, he left it all behind. He humbled himself. To be born in a manger to a virgin named Mary. To live a life in this earth, on this earth, walking the dusty roads all the way to the cross. And he did that to be tempted by the devil and by men. He did that to be ridiculed. He did it to be spit upon to be persecuted, to be tried and beaten for false, phony, trumped-up charges. He was drugged through the streets, ultimately to be nailed to a cross. That's giving. And he did it 
for the joy that was set before him. Think about that. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says, He endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. And then he sat down at the right hand of the Father. What was the joy that was set before him? What joy is there in living the life that he lived on earth and going to a cross and being nailed to it to die? The joy of being obedient to the Father. The joy that was set before him, knowing and trusting that the end result was going to be an amazing blessing. The joy that was set before him. When we look at Christ's gift of salvation, it it, it sets this... Well, I'm going to read a quote. Now, whether you agree with all of his theology or not, doesn't matter to me, but it's from Chuck Swindoll. And in a book called Hilarious Generosity, he said this, Christ's gift of salvation tells us joyful giving involves more than a smile on our face and a skip in our step. Real joy is much deeper than that. It involves the pleasure of doing God's will and it delights in the success of another. Real joy can accompany any circumstance, no matter how difficult. When we give generously, in a biblical way, giving is a delight. We can be generous and delight in that generosity. It's an attitude of the heart. Generosity is an attitude of the heart. Giving isn't about an offering. It's an attitude of your heart. Christian people should be the most generous, generous people on the planet. And it should be manifested in a Christian community more than anywhere else. The generosity. Because we delight in being obedient to the Lord. Our obedience really reaffirms our love for God. In 2 Corinthians 2, verse 8, he says this, I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for God. How does my giving, my generosity, reaffirm my love for God? The scripture says, if you obey my words, your love, my love, abides in you. Obedience pleases God. It shows that we love him. And when he talks about generosity and we respond generously in whatever area, whatever way we're being prompted, it pleases God and it reaffirms our love for him because we're being obedient. See how much bigger generosity is than putting a few bucks in a collection plate or in an offering box or whatever. It's so much bigger than that. Reaffirms our love. So how do we show our love for God? And what can you and I give back to Him? Well, first, we can give Him our worship. You know, we we were worshiping with the music. But our life is to be an act of worship. It's not that first 30 or 40 minutes or whatever it is of our Sunday morning service where we sing together corporately. It is worship. But if that's where it stops in our lives, we're making a grave mistake. We are to live lives of worship. So we can worship him. You know, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter or 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 
he makes Paul, when he's writing this letter, he's writing to the church at Corinth, but he talks to them about a church in the churches of Macedonia. And when he talks about it, I'm going to go ahead and read a few verses. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, starting at verse 1. And I encourage you to write this down, unless you've got a fabulous memory. He says this, And now, brothers, to the church in Corinth, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trials, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like a very worldly definition of generosity. How do we create generosity? Well, out of their severe trials and their extreme poverty, there was an overwhelming, overflowing joy that caused them to be generous. Amazing. He goes on and says, For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. They did this entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the states. They begged Paul, in spite of our poverty, please let us give. Let us help advance the kingdom. Let us experience the joy of being generous in obedience to God. What an awesome churches, group of churches that must have been in Macedonia. How could they do that? Listen to verse 5. He says, they didn't do as we expected. Who could have expected much? But they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. They gave themselves first to the Lord. What does that mean? They, they said, Lord, everything we have is yours. All that I am, all that I have, everything belongs to you. And once we have given it all to Him, it's really easy to be generous. Because it's not our stuff. I'd love to give away all your stuff. Anybody got anything that I can give away? I'd love to. Wouldn't you? It's all God's. And that's what the Macedonian church understood. It's all His. Everything that they were, everything that they had, belonged to Him. Their first priority was just simply to make everything completely available and dispensable to the Lord. Now I know our minds are going to material things right away, but I want you to expand it beyond that. I belong to the Lord. Lord, what do you want me to do with my time? What do you want me to do with my talents? Lord, can I just go love? Who needs me to love on them right now? Who can I go and encourage? You've given me encouragement. Thank you, God. In a world that's falling apart, I have a certain hope. Who can I share hope with? Who can I generously give hope to? It goes so far beyond money. But it's all in this package of generosity. Our worship doesn't just include our gratitude and our thanksgiving. It's the gift of ourselves. You and I need to give Him our bodies. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Therefore I urge you, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This, he said, is your spiritual act of worship. Give your bodies, the totality of who you are, give it to Him. 
This is Paul's instructions. Just give it to him. So we can give him our bodies and we can give him our service. When we perform acts of service, when we perform acts of kindness, when we do it not out of a sense of fear or a sense of duty, oh gee, I suppose I have to, when we do it out of a sense of blessing and obedience, in other words, out of love for the Lord, it brings joy to his heart. In 1 Corinthians 10, it says, Whatever we do, do it all for the glory of God. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. There's so many directions you could go with that. If whatever I do, I don't care what your job is, I don't care how miserable you let it make you, if you do it unto the glory of God, it will bring you joy. And you'll be thankful for it. If someone sits and complains every day, all day along about their job and their work, makes me wonder why they're doing it. To the glory of God or for the paycheck? When we do things for the glory of God, it brings blessing in our life, joy into our life, contentment into our life. There is lots of things I'm sure you have to do in your work and I have to do in my work that I don't always like that much. But if I can catch myself and remind myself, you know what, I am doing this unto the glory of God, it changes things. And the most important thing that it changes is my attitude. Because when my attitude stinks, it, God could care less what I'm doing, no matter how good it might look to somebody else. It's all about the heart attitude. Our acts of service should actually just be a natural outflow of the love of God in us. You shouldn't even hardly have to think about it. it you just do it. You see someone who, who has a need and you can meet that need. You see someone who doesn't have a coat and we're headed into winter. Give him a coat. You see someone who looks a little depressed or down, go up. And depending on how well you know them, maybe you can just put your arm around their shoulder and say, hey, can I just pray with you? What's going on? It should just be, you shouldn't have to do this thing where, I wonder if I should. I wonder if God wants me to love on somebody. Think about that for a second. That's a waste of time praying that prayer. Of course he wants you to love on somebody. He calls us to do that. He commands us to do that. I wonder if I should give them a coat because I have a whole closet full of them. Another stupid prayer. Give them a coat. In Christian community, this, this should just happen naturally. You see a need in the church. You know, we shouldn't hardly have to ask for volunteers unless it's a hidden need. Because people should just be doing it out of love for the Lord and love for their brothers and sisters in Christ. When you do these acts of service this way, it's worship. It's worship. Why does God, you ever ask yourself this question, why does God pour out so many blessings on us? Most of us don't ask ourselves that question, do we? Most of us say, I wonder why he doesn't bless me more. God has a reason for blessing us, besides he loves us. He blesses you and me 
because he wants us to bless others. God's economy. He does not give us all of his benefits to hide them away somewhere and store them for our own use. He wants us to distribute them. This is part of the cycle of giving that we're talking about. Paul wrote again in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He said this, Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed. In other words, he's saying, God, I just want you to just give so they feel better and you have to feel miserable. No, he said, that's not what I want at all. I want you to give. At the present time, he says, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. It's not socialism, by the way. Jesus, God, is not a socialist. It's not about let's all just pull it all together and split it up equally. No, it's about Christian mercy, kindness. It says, in my excess, if I see your need, I can give you it out of my, need, my excess to your lack. And that's what he's, Paul is saying. We're not just throwing it all in there because you got too much and we want some of it. That's socialism. God's economy. He gives so it can be distributed. Where there's a need, it comes from where there is a surplus. And there doesn't even have to be a surplus, quite frankly. You and I are blessed to be a blessing. And it all starts with God. He is the giver of wealth. And when you hear the word wealth, I want you to check your brain and say, what is wealth? Ask someone who's laying in a bed and dying of cancer and they've got a million dollars in their savings account what wealth is. Ask someone who is suffering in such dark, deep depression they're contemplating suicide and they're a multi-billionaire what wealth is. It's so much more than money. The joy of the Lord is wealth. The peace that passes all understanding is wealth. The hope that I have in Christ to spend eternity in heaven, that is wealth. And God pours out his wealth at us so that we can share it with others. We're blessed to be a blessing. And all those who love him will give generously out of the abundance he gives us. He is the giver of wealth. And he wants his wealth to be circulated. I mean, there's so many ridiculous examples I could use, but can you imagine you're having a good day and you come across someone you really love and having a bad day and said, I'm not giving away any of my happiness. I don't care how much of a shortage of tonnage there is in the world, I'm keeping this. How stupid would that be, right? That's how we act sometimes with what God has blessed us with. We hoard it. He wants to circulate it. There's a scripture in Ecclesiastes. And when you read Ecclesiastes, you kind of got to make sure you're reading what is really being said and the intention. But I think it's safe. This is pretty clear. In Ecclesiastes, verse 5, 13, it says, I have seen a grievous evil under the sun. Here's what it is. Wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner. 
God does not pour out his blessings that we might hoard them, regardless of what the blessings are. God's economy. If you're fortunate enough to have any investments and you would go and talk to some money manager, you might have asked him this thing, this question. Can you guarantee a return on my investment? And what do they do when you ask them that question? They look at you like you're from another planet. No, we can't guarantee anything. God's economy is the only economy that I can guarantee you a return on your investment. What you invest in God's economy will return blessing. Guaranteed. Don't hoard. Figure out what you can circulate for the kingdom of God. Be a blessing. Be a blessing. When this happens, guess what the church becomes? We become a distribution center. You know, you get into companies and manufacturing and, and you have big distribution centers. Uh, Relco just built a big distribution center in Marshall. They can make it over here, make it over here, make it over here, produce it over here, produce it over here, but they send it all to their distribution center, I think, and then it goes out from there. I believe in God's economy. The church is his primary distribution center. We should be a distribution center. You know, a, a, a church... Maybe some of you have heard of Talmadge Johnson. He's a church leader, but he said this. The greatness of a church isn't determined by what it takes in, but by what it gives out. What it gives out. You know, there's some other advantages to our giving. One of them is an impact on a lost world. In John 13, verse 35, it says this. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. How do we demonstrate love for one another? With our generosity. Meeting people's needs. The early church focused on this. When we give, it has an impact on the world. They're watching. The world is watching. They're watching you as a Christian if they know you're a Christian. If they don't know you're a Christian, you might want to check out your lifestyle. But they're watching. And don't, don't get disappointed because they're hypercritical. Because they're going to be. They're going to hold you to a level of perfectionism. That's the devil. We're to live a life reflecting the glory of God. Regardless of what the world says. Demonstrate the love of Christ. Again, in John 13, By this men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Giving doesn't just impact the world, it impacts you. You want to know one of the... the I think it's one of the most destructive character traits we can have. Selfishness. Selfishness. Generosity is a cure for selfishness. This cycle of giving and getting and giving again is a great way to break selfishness. When we give, 
and we're selfish. It causes us to step out by faith. It exercises our faith. God responds to our giving. But the ideal gift is still ourselves. Giving of ourselves. Giving to others. Ministering. In Matthew 10, 8, Jesus tells his disciples, Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. There's a cycle. I'm going to give it. You give it. And I'll give you some more. Test me in this. See what I can give. Even though we can't give as much as God has given in the way that Jesus gave, we can give. Sacrificially, intentionally, purposely, lovingly, we can give, gladly give. And when we give by these principles, you can be sure that you're going to be an encouragement to other people. Essentially, there are three kinds of givers, and I'm going to wrap up with this. Three kinds of givers, and I'd love to expand on each one. But the first one is a grudge giver. One who gives begrudgingly. And if you want to help picture this, picture a child who's got a room full of toys. And his little friend goes over to pick up one of his toys. And guess which becomes the kid's most favorite toy right now? That toy. And he goes over and grabs that toy and the other one's planning to take it and there's tug of war going on over this toy. A grudge giver is doing that with the Lord. It's mine. No, please give it. No, it's mine. No, share it with others. No, it's mine. And finally, okay, I guess I have to give it. Grudge giving will not bring the blessings of God. It's an attitude of, I don't want to. But. Second is the obligatory giving. I suppose I have to. It's expected of me. People are watching. I better give something. Anybody got a one? All I got is five. But I got to give something. I should or I have to. We write out a check and our heart's certainly not in it. It's painful. Watch their face as they write their check. And then the third one is a grace giver. I give because I want to give. I want to be a blessing. I want to give because God tells me to be generous and I love God and I want to please Him. A grace giver. We receive everything by grace. Let's give it by grace. Grace giving feels really good. Obligation giving or grudge giving just destroys my soul. It drains me. On the flip side, grace giving builds us up, it strengthens us, it refreshes us. Billy Graham wrote these words, God has given us two hands, one to receive with and the other one to give. We are not cisterns made for hoarding, we're channels made for sharing. If you were forced to, if I held a gun to your head and asked you, which one of those three are you, what would you say? Don't shout out your answers. Are you a grudge giver? Are you an obligatory giver? I guess I have to. Or are you a grace giver? You know, as the leadership team of this church, we believe whatever God calls us to do as a church, the provision is already there. If you've been in this church very long, you know when we built this building, 
we felt very clearly the Lord spoke to our hearts, don't worry, the finances are already in the congregation. Pray that the congregation releases the finances. And this church is a testimony to that. The church was paid for in five years. You know, a church is like everything else. You make an investment. And we are investing in the kingdom of God, and it looks in a lot of different ways. But some of the things are as practical in a church as they are in your home. Anybody's electric bill gone up? Food prices going up anywhere? Is the cost of living accelerated? Oh, yeah, it is. Our electric bill for this building last month was $825 approximately. It used to be $300. Fuel oil, you know what it is. You pay them out at home. Costs go up. We believe the Lord will meet every need. We believe we've seen God be faithful to our mission commitments. And we give almost $2,000 a month right off the top to missions. Staffing. Our Truebridge support. Special offerings, and we received a special offering for the remodeling project. $12,000, so more than that came in. Paid for the whole project. Grace giving, at least that's what we hope it was. But we're trusting that God, and we believe God has given us vision for things in the future. And those things are going to be things that will require an investment. You know, in the last year, there's been a whole lot of things changed. The last two months, a whole lot have changed. We believe that the Lord was leading us to hire a full-time staff person to work with our different ministries. We hired Casey. The fruit of that investment has already been amazing. But it's an investment that we make to pay her salary, to pay my salary, to pay Pastor Bob's partial salary. All of these things, investment that the church has to make. We believe that as the Lord leads us, there's so many things that we need to expand in. Outreach, evangelism, more discipleship. You know, the, the classes. You know, we remodeled those rooms and there's over about 52 kids the last week going to our Victory for Kids classes. That's about, no, 30-some kids. 52 kids on youth group night. More youth group kids than we've had before and the 32 kids is still twice as many as we had in Sunday school and we're doing it for a smaller age range. The investment is working. And as we continue and invest, as the Lord leads us, we believe it will bear much fruit. All of these things require generosity. Discipleship. It takes time to disciple other people. The generosity of, of John and Brian and Relco, they've let us use the facilities up there every Wednesday night to have classes to disciple one another. What a blessing the Lord has provided to us through that company. And the list goes on and on. So I feel in one sense I'm talking to the, the choir about generosity and generous giving, but at the same time I want to challenge us. We can do so much more for the kingdom. We need to encourage us and challenge ourselves to be more generous with our time, our talents, and our treasure. And when we do it with a right heart, God will bless it. Let's close in prayer. Lord, again, I pray that as I share these things, your heart is revealed that, Father, you own everything. You don't need anything from us. 
but in your economy, we get to be a part of what you're doing. We get to be a part of advancing the kingdom. When we take a hold of those things that you bless us with and turn around and bless others, the cycle just continues. I pray that you would bless each one here, that we can be a greater blessing. God, that we can see the kingdom advance in southwest Minnesota for your glory and for your honor. And Lord, now I ask that you would bless each one as we go our separate ways. Watch over us. Keep us safe. Protect us. Line up divine appointments. Give us sensitivity to your Holy Spirit. Lead and guide and direct us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.